Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and as always, I'm joined by Avi Cooper and Hannah Abrams. How's it going, guys? It's good. How are you? <laughs> Very good. Going well, Tony. For, for, so I have to say it, Hannah literally 10 minutes ago got her schedule for her first rotation as an MGH intern. So if she's a little giddy on this episode, uh, that's a partial explanation. The other reason will be that we will be talking about umami. <laughs> Which is a very good reason. Right. So so today uh, we will be talking about uh, that most wonderful of flavors, uh, umami. Uh, it is quite delicious, um, and along the way, we'll explore what taste actually means in our brains. Uh, we'll also learn about the mechanism behind the magic that happens when cooking with a mix of different sources of umami is done. Okay, so Avi, how did this question occur to you, and how did it not occur to the rest of us? I mean, why wouldn't you want to learn about umami? <laughs> it's it's so good. <laughs> Right, I mean, it's a, it's the first thing I think about. Medicine podcast. Clearly, we're going to be talking about umami. Um, okay, so there there is some medicine that will be discussed. Uh, we promise. Uh, but let's take a step back. Uh, I think most listeners will know what umami means, but probably not everyone. So maybe Avi, you can talk a little bit about like what the heck does that term even mean? So umami is the flavor of savory deliciousness, and it's <laughs> it sure is. It is. It's. It, it. I mean, that's what it is, and it's. You know, it's separate from the other four types of taste that you know we all learned about in school, and you know, I definitely didn't learn about umami in grade school, like science class, when we learned about tastes and the quadrants of the tongue and stuff. Did you guys learn about that? No. No. Yeah. And you know, when I think about umami, I think about Parmesan cheese, fish, soy sauce, shiitake mushrooms, seared steak, um, and honestly, like preferably some combination of those flavors together that really makes the food um, outrageously delicious. And so um, I want to know what, what are your favorite umami ingredients? So, so um, my favorite food to make is bolognese. Um, and uh, I think that's one situ like one dish where there's a ton of umami. And actually when I think about what I have put into it to try to make it as umami f uh, forward as possible, uh, I realize I've added uh, anchovies and soy sauce, which are like not typical foods for Italian dishes, but actually work perfectly for this. So if you had to ask, I would say anchovies and soy sauce. Those would be like my classic umami ingredients. I love that this podcast has just turned into serious eats. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big, uh, yeah, I like to put soy sauce on like everything or fish sauce on everything. Uh, so umami is also a, a wonderful word, and it has a beautiful history. Can you kind of tell us how it became to um, how how did this flavor get defined? Yeah, you know, umami. It it almost it sounds like the flavor tastes to me, like the 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 sound of the word. You know, sounds like the savoriness that that you get from from the flavor. And, you know, that is actually what it means in Japanese. Umami means savoriness huh. in Japanese. Hmm. Um, and it was coined by the chemist Kikune Ikeda, who was actually the first to describe and, you know, discover umami. Um, although in the, the late 19th century, uh, French chef Auguste Escoffier was actually deliberately using umami flavor um, when he was using his famous veal stocks um, to make like soups and stuff like that. But but um, then that was famous veal stocks. Yeah. At the time, I think they were famous, but um, but, 
but you know, this was this was years, uh, several years before Kikeda described it. So it's like a, I think there's a controversy about who actually discovered umami uh, between these two. But um, Escoffier didn't codify the flavor scientifically like Ikeda did. So, it, so for Ikeda, how did he actually come to um, codify it? Like, how did he discover it and, and describe it? So this is one of the my the favorite parts for me of of learning about umami and 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 its 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 origins. Um, you know, it was was the this story about Kikeda discovering the flavor, and he, um, it happened in 1907. And he was sitting down for dinner with his family, and he was eating a bowl of dashi broth, which is made from uh, it was made from bonito and kelp. And he, for whatever reason, that night found it to be particularly delicious and kind of perceived its savory flavor, and he called the flavor umami. And since he was a chemist, he then went about isolating the source of the flavor, because, of course, why wouldn't he? And he um, eventually found that it was glutamate was the source of, of this, this flavor for him. And by 1909, he'd extracted crystals that actually delivered a pure umami flavor and called them ajinomoto, which means origins of flavor in Japanese. We know this compound today by its chemical abbreviation MSG, or monosodium glutamate. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but this isn't making me like really very, very hungry. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is making me want to go over to Tony's house for some bolognese sauce. Yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, this is making me just want to learn about like the mechanism of mom, of umami. <laughs> you're uh, that you're probably a says something about me. Than I. <laughs> you're staying on point. <laughs> okay, so what was the mechanism of umami then? So it was actually controversial for for years about whether umami was a distinct flavor, um, partly at least because nobody had found the receptor that the taste receptor that was um, that was the source. But then in 2003. The receptor was identified, and um, a group, uh, a research group, actually knocked out a glutamate receptor complex known as T1R1 plus three. It's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, not bad. (laughs) So um, they did this in mice, and they eliminated the mice's uh, response to umami stimulation. And so this actually proved umami's existence, and at the same time identified its mechanism, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, but it it proves it in mice. Um, but I guess the question is, does it prove it in humans? Um, so it turns out that two um, percent of the population of humans has polymorphisms in this two one T one R one plus three receptor that makes it inactive, and those individuals actually cannot taste umami from birth. <gasps> that sounds dreadful. <laughs> I'm definitely not inviting them over for bolognese because they're going to be like, oh, my God, this is so bland and uninteresting. <laughs> so, you know, we know that people with inactive um, T1R1 plus 3 can't taste the savory flavor of glutamate. And there actually are other sources of umami as well. Um, the most prominent um, other source is inosine monophosphate or IMP. So IMP is actually a purine nucleotide and it signals through the same umami receptor, but it binds at a different site than glutamate. So how does all of that translate into the umami that we might use while we're cooking the sources? So the idea that you can get different versions of umami flavor by combining different umami sources was actually something that I guess I had a sense of intuitively from like preparing food, but I never actually knew why or how it worked until I started reading about this. And so it turns out that some umami-rich foods only have glutamate, and so like tomatoes or cheese. 
and others actually have glutamate and IMP. And so Benito and beef were two examples that I came across. And, um, so in your experience, guys, when you're cooking, what, what happens when certain umami flavors are mixed together? It tastes delicious. Yeah. I feel like after this podcast, I'm going to be spending a lot of time (laughs) trying to like really appreciate when I have like tomatoes and beef together or something. (laughs) But I do want to point out that the combination of tomato-based sauces and beef does point to the primacy of the barbecue of my home state of Texas (laughs) over that of non-tomato-based sauces in other parts of the country. So uh, We won't mention those, apparently. Yeah, no. Adam Rodman, North Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say I forgot to mention probably the most important umami flavor in the bolognese that I try to make, and that's tomato paste. I mean, that is just concentrated tomato umaminess. Um, so, but to answer your question, Avi, like when you mix them together, I don't know. It's just like, I, I don't know that I've done it intentionally, but it tastes delicious. And I've heard it called the umami bomb, like this, yeah, exactly. This explosion of deliciousness. And so when you combine glutamate and IMP together, the the signal strength through that T1R1 plus three receptor actually synergistically increases about 30 fold because of like conformational receptor changes. And so that synergistic signaling, you know, explains why cooking with different umami sources, sources like when you do tomatoes and beef, say in your bolognese um, or soy sauce, which shiitake mushrooms, which have glutamate and mix those with like sardines or, or chicken, which have IMP, why that can be just so delicious um, because you're, you're getting that synergistic signaling through the umami receptor um, and it and it's greatly enhanced. So it sounds like um, umami is pretty fundamental to uh, awesome food. Um, but you know, is there like a teleological explanation? Like, is there a why? Like, why do humans taste umami? I didn't know any of this before I started, you know, reading about this topic, but it turns out there are a number of physiologic purposes that umami serves. So umami signaling does increase saliva production. And when you mix glutamate and IMP signaling, you get a similar synergy. So you get a lot more salivation and saliva production. And glutamate is also the most common amino acid in in breast milk. Uh, But even more fundamentally than that, umami seems to be the way that we sense the presence of protein and nucleotides in food, kind of like saltiness signals to our brains that we're eating minerals or that sweetness signals that we're ingesting carbohydrates. Those mm. are my first thoughts when I, yeah, have cereal in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> what Wait, a coffee th- signal. Uh, <laughs> it's the morning. Yeah, time to go. So, well, so you know, what I'm going to describe now is, is a theory, a teleological theory that's been put forth by evolutionary biologists. It's impossible to prove, but um, it does represent the, the current thinking about why we as humans are so sensitive to umami. Um, and so, yeah, we, we love the impossible to prove theories. <laughs> yeah. I am P possible. Yeah. Impossible. <laughs> That was well done. So, no, it wasn't. <laughs> well done was supposed to be a pun too. Oh, food. Uh. But, <laughs> I guess if you have to explain it, it's not really funny. But <laughs> so, well, so here's the theory. So, thousands of years ago, our early Homo sapien ancestors started to cook and ferment food, um, and this actually was a major survival advantage for them. 
uh, compared to other human species that were around at the time, uh, because cooking releases micro and macronutrients from the food and it kills parasites um, and kind of makes the food safer to eat. And so uh, the hydrolysis from cooking and fermenting also actually breaks down protein and nucleotides, releasing glutamate and IMP and uh, uh, heightening our ability to taste the umami in the food reading. So in effect, cooking can accelerate the release of umami flavor and probably incentivized our these early humans to eat nutritionally advantageous food that had been cooked or fermented, which again was an ad- advantage. Wow. So, okay, let me, let me recap for a second. So there are multiple different compounds that contribute to different types of like umami flavor. So there's glutamate and there's IMP. And then we have this theory that is totally unprovable that if you combine, both of those are present in cooked meat and therefore umami is an evolutionary way to advance, to, to make it more advantageous to eat cooked meat and therefore not get infections and die. Yeah. And I guess, <laughs> I, I guess, uh, yeah, I think, I think so. I think so. I, I think also the idea would be that like people in populations that were more sensitive to umami and, in these early stages of preparing food would have done it more and would have had the advantages, the nutritional advantages of, of doing that. I think that's the theory. Wow. But to be very clear, this podcast is not endorsing well done steak. Can we, can we just all agree on that? Yes, You're but not we are endorsing Texas barbecue as the well, best that's, form of barbecue. That's, been, that's clear. No, that's Yeah, clear. that's scientifically I, proven. I, <laughs> By umami. That's uh, Hannah's uh, already putting that together for episode 12 yeah. <laughs> and 13 and 14 and 15. Uh, um, okay. But so those are some advantages of all of these compounds, but I, I don't know. The thing that came to mind kind of immediately when you were talking about purines is gout. Um, so what's kind of the relationship between purines and the flavor umami in a, a diet that we might give to a patient? with gout, for example. So not surprisingly, you know, given what we've learned about IMP, like you said, that it's a purine, it's a source of umami, a low purine diet as recommended for gout control would be low in umami, unfortunately. And that probably explains why it's kind of notoriously hard to adhere to. Mm. Um, so, you know, there, there are umami rich foods that are not high in purines. Um, so those would be the um, ones that get their umami flavor exclusively from glutamate. And so we mentioned tomatoes, uh, shiitake mushrooms, red peppers, Parmesan cheese, and mm. of course, MSG. So, you know, all all is not lost for those who have to adhere to that diet. Mm. Yeah, and, and we won't cover it on this episode, but MSG, um, it, that is a fascinating story behind the sort of um, uh, uh, black mark that was uh, uh, appointed mm-hmm. to MSG uh, based on... Um, Probably incorrect information. I'll just leave it at that. I'm not sure if you guys have have, have, have seen what's been written and published about that. It, it, MSG is delicious. It's, I say it's it just delicious way. to me. I, it's just yeah. delicious. Um, so, so Avi, is there anything else you learned uh, or found when researching this topic um, that we haven't yet covered? So I was really surprised to learn that there's some that there's some data that ironically umami suppresses appetite, which I found very counterintuitive. Uh, but there was a study that, 
in uh, in rats who were given MSG in their diet, and then compared to rat compared to rats who were not given MSG, and the ones who were given MSG actually had reduced leptin levels. They gained less weight. They had smaller amounts of, of abdominal fat. And there's also some human data that suggests appetite suppression and reduced postprandial hunger with a sense of umami. And I guess subjectively for me, this kind of you know, that sense of satisfaction that when you know you've you've had a, like a delicious umami meal, you feel satisfied and like you don't need more. At least that's my experience. Or, or you need. Or you more. need more. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, so do you have any takeout? I mean, uh, take home <laughs> points for us. <laughs> so, so probably most importantly, um, other than that, Hannah is hilarious. Umami <laughs> is delicious, and, and the Texas um, barbecue is the best. <laughs> and Texas barbecue is the best. So you know, we know that the mechanism for why it's delicious. Um, you know, now and why combining different sources of umami, um, specifically glutamate and IMP, produce such intense umami flavor. Although it really, you know, interestingly, it was only fairly recently discovered how all this works. Um, there's also some some uh, fascinating theories about what adaptive or evolutionary purpose our sensitivity to umami plays whether early humans were incentivized to cook and ferment their food because of this enhanced taste and the advantages that, that um, preparing food this way, you know, would have given them. That's fantastic. And, and um, it kind of makes me want to go back to the drawing board a little bit with bowl of A's and see if I could sort of better um, work on my glutamate and IMP overlap because mm-hmm. I it's possible that I am like way too far in one direction or the other. Um, and uh, while you're doing the experiments for that, uh Avi <laughs> and I are here. We are here for you. <laughs> well, you happen to be a boss and Avi is quite a bit of ways. S- so t- send food, Tony. Send food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well um that's it for tonight. Um we hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. Um Next time on the podcast, we'll actually be exploring the question, why does metronidazole treat both bacterial and parasitic infections? In the meantime, thanks again for joining us. And if you have an interesting tutorial or online meta teaching point that you think we should feature on the show, please do tag us on Twitter. I'm at Tony underscore Brew. And I'm at Avraham Cooper, MD. Uh, And I'm at Hannah R. Abrams. And you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at at CuriousClinPod. Finally, we invite you to join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com so that you can stay up to date with the episode releases, get the show notes in your inbox, and you can also find out more information about how to get CME and MOC credit just for listening to this episode, which you already did. Uh, As always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. The Curious Clinicians are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer continuing education and ABIM maintenance of certification credits for physicians. Tap the link in the show notes or visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians for more information.